You're with Sean Jung and Where the Veil Grows Thin, an exploration of the sacred moments of our human experience in life and death, joy and sorrow, birth and end of life. It's the unscripted instant when the heart opens, the face-to-face moments with the divine. She was a tough and feisty Wyoming cowgirl, 67 years old. And it just so happened the nurse assigned to her when she was admitted to hospice was also tough and feisty, younger and certainly less of a cowgirl, but she was raised in Wyoming, and she missed her mom and dad who were still in Wyoming on their ranch. The woman we admitted to hospice had been widowed for decades, She now lived in a basement apartment below her son's home on his horse ranch in Colorado because she had become unable to safely care for herself alone. Her admitting diagnosis for hospice was a progressive and untreatable form of lung cancer. She lived life as independently as she could for as long as she could dragging oxygen tubes, and using a scooter when walking became difficult. She did whatever she had to do, never complaining about any of the things that came as a result of her declining health. Her greatest joy was watching her family compete in rodeos. She loved horses, dogs, and her grandchildren, most of all in the world. Her hospice nurse was a consummate professional who always managed to provide loving, tender care to her patients without becoming emotionally embroiled in their lives. Until she met Sue. They developed an instant connection based on a deep appreciation and respect for one another. They became good friends over the course of the months that Sue was on hospice care and reports during staff meetings on her slowly declining condition began to be peppered with confessions from her nurse of how attached she knew she was becoming to this patient. In speaking with her privately about this connection, I understood that in her heart she was struggling not only with the loss of a patient she had become close to, she was also struggling with what it was bringing up for her around what it might feel like to lose her own mom, who was very close to Sue's age. This had never happened to this particular nurse before. She had never really thought about her parents dying, but Sue reminded her of her mom. And the emotional toll for this nurse, especially when Sue died, was something I wanted to be sure I was sensitive to. In my own visits with this particular patient, I came to see her as an inspiration. Her grandchildren were young, and she wanted so much to believe that they would remember her. We talked about writing legacy letters or doing a life review that she could leave as a legacy. My sense was that she wanted to, but she didn't want to at the same time, almost as though she didn't believe her life was worthy of that if that makes sense. That particular conversation was the one time Sue cried when we talked about how important it is to feel like our time here has made a difference in someone else's life. 
She assured me that she was not afraid of dying. She was, however, afraid of suffering. She was not a religious person by her own admission, but also by her own admission, she believed in God, and she also believed in an afterlife. As her cancer began to take a stronger hold on her day-to-day life, her suffering was sometimes almost impossible to manage. She had declined a hospital bed until the very end, and when the very end looked imminent, she relented when we helped her understand that it would be easier for all of us to care for her if she were in a maneuverable bed. She was having a lot of trouble finding any position that was comfortable, and the hospital bed gave her an easier way to reposition herself when no one else was there to help. Visits from her nurse became more frequent. At our final staff meeting before Christmas, her nurse was making daily visits out to the ranch where Sue lived. On Sunday afternoon, the day after Christmas, I got a call from Sue's nurse. She was on her way to Sue's house because the family had called. She asked if I may be able to meet her there, and I said I would. A continuous strip morphine pump had been delivered and set up a few days earlier because of the aggressive pain from her cancer. The family had called that morning and reported that at that moment they felt Sue was resting comfortably, but they were all so tired, and they felt that the end might be near, and they were asking for our support. I arrived before the nurse. Sue's adult son, and her only child, was cleaning tack and preparing saddles in the open barn just outside of her living quarters. He said his wife had gone for a drive. Sue and her daughter-in-law were very close, and much of her direct care had fallen to the daughter-in-law. Everyone was exhausted, and I had already decided that when I got there, I would try to get them to do just that, go for a drive. But I could see that her son was doing exactly what he needed to be doing and I hoped that her daughter-in-law would find a restful place to pull over and possibly shut her eyes for a bit. I went in and sat by Sue's bed. Her breathing was rapid and shallow. I touched her forehead, and I told her I was there. There was no response. Her nurse arrived shortly after I did, and for the next two hours— We adjusted pain meds, adjusted positions, and then adjusted our approach. We sat across from each other and held hands over her. We spoke to her reassuringly that we were there trying to help her find comfort and that her family was being supported and that she was not alone. And in all of this, she moaned and continued to breathe shallow, rapid breaths with great difficulty. Her morphine pump was discharging incredible amounts of morphine. Her nurse administered Ativan for agitation, and still Sue moaned. I could almost feel my co-worker suffering as much as our patient. Desperate to try to make it better, we talked about what it could be that was causing her so much distress. What had we missed in the ten months that we had been caring for her? 
that might explain all of this difficulty and reluctance to go. And then we talked about the difficulty in just being with someone in their difficulty and struggle around dying, and how important it was for both of us to know in our hearts that we were making it better through our presence than it would be without us, but that we could not do for her the work she had to do to die. And at that point, whatever demons she was struggling with were hers alone. We could only accompany her so far, and at some point she would have to release this life and step into whatever was waiting. And then all of a sudden, as we were speaking about this, Sue relaxed. Her breathing began to slow, and her oxygen sats were unreadable. I told the nurse I was going to go upstairs and get the family and Sue's little dog, Savannah, who immediately curled up by Sue's side. Her son came down and stood at the foot of his mom's bed with his hand on her foot and tears running down his face. The nurse and I sat on either side of her bed where we had been all morning. We watched her finally relinquish the fight and surrender a body that had long ago stopped serving her. In that moment, because of what we had been watching for the past hours, our own tears were as much ones of relief as they were of sorrow. Her labor had been long and difficult. It was not one of those beautiful, peaceful deaths. It was difficult and challenging. And her nurse, who was also now her friend, had done an amazing job being there through it all. She knew it was an honor. She knew it was the very least she could do for this patient, who had become such a special friend, and she would not have wanted to be anywhere else. And she suffered in the experience of this death. I bring this story to you today, I think, because it isn't pretty. It's important to know that the work of dying is not always pretty. And it's important to remember that as much as those caring for them try to ready themselves for an inevitable death, there are always going to be those patients that will touch our hearts in unusually deep ways, resulting in unavoidable pain when they die. I had the privilege recently of observing an oncologist as she sat bedside with one of her patients to tell him the treatments were not working. She did not tell him he was dying, because we do not know when that will come. But when she told him she could not continue to give him chemotherapy, she cried. And he cried. And his daughter cried. And I cried. No dry eyes and not one single apology for any of those tears. That was the best part. His physician did not say she was sorry for the tears. She did not apologize for crying. She said she was sorry for the failure of the chemo to buy him any more time. And then she leaned over and hugged him for a long time. When we care for others, feeling our own pain and watching them suffer is real. Allowing ourselves to express that pain makes us real, too. 
I would always say to hospice volunteers and staff that it's okay to cry with the families or patients that we care for as long as we stop before they do. Otherwise, roles are reversed very quickly and we become the ones being cared for. And that is not why we are there. And it is the main reason we need to have ways, places, people to listen and support for staff to process being the disenfranchised mourners when patients die. When someone is a patient, it means that they are being cared for by people who initially were strangers. Even doctors who care for folks become the disenfranchised mourners when one of their clients or patients die. It's a strange and unsettling feeling. Usually, no one even acknowledges the heartbreak and sadness for those who have cared for someone. No one sends us cards. No one brings covered dishes to the door. Flowers are not delivered. It is isolating, confusing, sometimes enraging, and definitely, definitely sad. Sue's nurse experienced this in a big way when Sue died, and she experienced it for the first time with a hospice patient. The family was grateful in the moment. There were so many hugs and tears and words of thanks when she and I were preparing to leave once the funeral home had removed Sue's body. But after that, nothing. We learned in hospice to do it for one another. We learned that a moment of, res- of remembrance once a month, to light a candle and read the names of the patients who had died, gave the nurses and aides who had cared for them a chance to talk about how it felt to not have them on their calendars anymore. This particular nurse learned a lot from this crusty old Wyoming cowgirl. She knew that she had been put in Sue's life for a reason, and she took time off after Sue's death. She went home to visit her parents. I want to believe that she will always remember Sue for the gifts she left behind, that eventually she will forget the pain of losing her, the pain of watching her struggle so desperately to get out of here when she had told us the only thing she was scared of was suffering, and that eventually this nurse will just feel thankful for the privilege of having known her. This is Sean Jung. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the cups of coffee folks have been buying me on the website. I hope you'll join me again where the veil grows thin.